American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today, we're talking about Claire Booth Luth, an incredibly multifaceted woman. She was a congresswoman, playwright, war correspondent, ambassador, advisor to presidents, trend-setting socialite, writer, mother, and Catholic convert. Luz spent many years on the short list of most influential and admired women in the world. She was known for her sharp intelligence, quick wit, and an ability to turn a phrase, as well as her delicate blonde beauty. But her life wasn't all glamour, jet-setting, and making the world take notice of her. Her family life, from her earliest days until her later years, was filled with struggles and tragedies. And it was these trials that led her to fall into the embrace of the church in her middle years and saw her change from the saucy writer of The Women to the poignant storyteller of Come to the Stable. I love classic films, and I've seen both of these. In fact, I own at least one of them. So I love that we can tell aspects of our story through two such contrasting films. And one thing about Luce, dear listener, is that there is a lot that can be said about her. We include a number of really great articles, biographies, and interviews in our show notes because there is much that we simply have to skip over in this short sketch of her remarkable life. So let's start her story. She was born Anne Claire Booth on March 10th, 1903 in New York City. Yes, and from an early age, she was known as just Claire. Her father was a brilliant violinist and a struggling salesman. Her mother was a chorus girl and her parents were never married. When she was eight, her parents separated. Her mother reached for a more glamorous life for Claire than her income should have allowed. She helped Claire begin a career on Broadway from an early age. At 10, she was an understudy for Mary Pickford and made her Broadway debut at 14. From early in life, she began to build an unflagging sense of confidence in her own beauty and an ability to overcome and do. Now, in addition to landing roles on Broadway, she did graduate tops of her class from the Cathedral School in Terrytown, New York. So it wasn't all precociousness or pretension. She really did possess real aptitude and intelligence from an early age. Oh, certainly. And it was that combination of actual ability, intelligence and otherwise, along with an arresting beauty and utter confidence that would aid her in rising so high. And it also eventually contributed to the reasons why so many resented her. In her late teens, she became a regular at the fashionable parties in New York and Paris. And at 20 years old, she married George Tuttle Brokaw. Brokaw was the millionaire heir to a New York clothing fortune. He was 24 years older than she. He was an alcoholic and was abusive. She now lived in an enormous marble-lined mansion on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, right across from Central Park. She had a daughter, Anne Claire Brokaw, but in 1929, the marriage ended in divorce. She got a very nice chunk of change for her troubles, plus a guarantee of education expenses for her daughter, Anne. Shortly after the divorce, she convinced a fellow society figure by the name of Condé Nast to give her a chance at writing. Initially, she was writing captions for photos at Vogue, and from there, she got noticed by the editors of Vanity Fair. She rose to associate editor at Vanity Fair and began trying her hand at playwriting. Her first play that made it to the stage was a terrible flop. It was titled Abide With Me, and of it, she said, it abode with no one. 
a melodrama without a trace of humor, it was a flop. The reviews would have discouraged anyone less stubborn than I to abandon playwriting forever. That sort of forthrightness and brutal honesty, even with herself, was all her. In 1935, she married again, this time to Henry Luce, the magazine magnet who was responsible for Time magazine, Life magazine, Fortune magazine, and Sports Illustrated, though Claire later insisted that she was the one to give him the idea for life. With his media empire, Henry Luce was known as the most influential private citizen in the America of his day. So needless to say, theirs was a very powerful marriage by many worldly measures. He was the head of a publishing empire. She was an accomplished writer in her own right and was glamorous in the life of every party. She knew everyone and always had a story or the perfect turn of phrase for the situation. They were a great match in many ways, not least because neither of them was intimidated by the ability and power of the other. But their marriage had its dark elements also. For one, Henry Luce had left a wife and two children to marry Claire. And it was a poorly kept secret that both of them had multiple affairs. But with the circles they moved in, such moral profligacy was hardly a barrier to entry. It was almost something to be admired and desired. After their marriage, Claire started to be known as Claire Booth Luce and returned to writing plays. In 1936, she had a hit with The Women, a groundbreaking play in that it had 40 roles and all of them were women, not a single role for a man. The play was very positively received and was made into a hit movie in 1939 starring Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, and Rosalind Russell. And this movie, as we suggested at the beginning of this episode, kind of gives a window into her life at this point. There are 40 women, and there is only one pleasant character in the entire show. The whole point of the show was to showcase women being catty and awful to others and themselves. The only pleasant character was the main character, and she is trying to win back her difficult husband. But then the triumph moment of the plot is when that main character finally gives up on her husband and just becomes as awful as the rest of the women. Some triumph. Right, I know. But again, given the circumstances of Claire's life to this point, she had lots of material to go by. A father who abandoned her, an abusive alcoholic first husband, a cold, distant second husband, and lots of time in social settings where cattiness and power plays were the way of life. The major turn of her life was not too far away, however. It started with the war. When World War II broke out in Europe, Claire got herself a gig with Life magazine as a war correspondent, and she went to Europe to cover what could be seen. Her articles were as well written as was expected, but they didn't lose their characteristic self-interested bent. She spent as much time talking about her own experiences and herself as she did the G.I.'s. She turned her writing into a book called Europe in the Spring. One critic, Dorothy Parker, herself a pretty big wit, called it All Claire on the Western Front. <laughs> when she returned to the States, she turned her acerbic wit and large megaphone against President Franklin Roosevelt and his handling of the war. She ran for Congress as a Republican in Connecticut in 1942 and won the seat. She was placed on the important House Military Affairs Committee and became a nationally known figure for her speeches and pointed opposition to the Roosevelt administration. But it was during her time in Congress that everything changed for her. Yes, indeed. In 1943, her beloved daughter, Anne, a senior at Stanford, was killed in a car accident in California. Claire had traveled out to California with her for the beginning of her senior year. That final morning, she had slept in because Anne was catching a ride with a friend to go the last few miles to campus. Claire would catch up later. Instead, 
Claire was awakened by a secretary with the horrible news, and her life changed forever. Claire and Henry buried Anne near a grove of old oak trees at Mepkin, the 7,000-acre plantation in South Carolina, which the Luces had bought as a getaway. Claire fell into a depression and poured herself and her anger into her political activism. She won re-election in 1944 and spent time on tour in war-torn Europe, where she visited liberated Nazi death camps and campaigned against the rise of communism in Europe. It was during this time also that she had the crisis of life that became a crisis of faith and the birth of her conversion to Catholicism. Three years later, in 1947, she would write three essays for McCall's about her conversion and the reason why. We link to a reprint of the third of them in our show notes, and it is a bracing read. Do yourself a favor and work your way through it. Her pain and the struggle of her mind and heart just leap off the page. She was such a great writer, and she let herself be so vulnerable in this article. Of the bottom of her despair, she wrote, quote, I tasted at long last the real meaning of meaninglessness. It is to believe that one is crawling to extinction, unloved, unlovable, and unloving in the same kind of world. From those depths of despair and amidst her sobbing, she began to pray the only prayer she remembered, the Our Father. Then she happened upon a particular unopened envelope on her desk. It was from a Jesuit priest, Father Edward Viatrac, who had been writing to her for five years. His writings to her had started after a particular article she had published about orphans in China, and ever since he had written to her every few weeks with what amounted to little sermons of encouragement and meditation on scripture. Claire quoted his perennial message as, Love perfects justice, justice in which God is loved above all things, with the whole mind, heart, and soul, and everything else is loved in God. God and love are the port of the soul. The soul must needs endure wretched torment when it does not rest in love. And Claire noted, he never asked for anything, never made policy suggestions, never asked her to come speak, but he always included that he was praying for her. She found the phone number for the mission house where he was staying and called. The person who answered went to fetch father. While she was waiting, she couldn't stand it and hung up the phone. But then she pulled herself together and picked up the receiver again. The operator, because this is how things worked back then, hadn't severed the connection, so she was on the line when Father Viatrak came on the phone. Claire said, Father, I am not in trouble, but my mind is in trouble. Father Viatrak replied, We know. This is the call we have been praying for. He then proceeded to explain that he knew he was not up to the task of helping her overcome the intellectual and spiritual difficulties she was having. So that night, he set her up with a priest who lived in D.C. whom he knew could help her. And that priest? None other than Monsignor Fulton Sheen. The one and only. She went to meet with Monsignor Sheen, and apparently within just a few minutes of the start of their conversation, she got right to the salient point. She demanded to know, listen, if God is good, why did he take my daughter? Sheen replied, in order that you might be here in the faith. I can't imagine sitting there and hearing that and not just flying into a rage. Seriously. And she may have at first. But such was the state of Claire's mind and heart that eventually the firm but gentle ministrations of Monsignor Sheen brought down her defenses and she came into the church. In that third essay for McCall's, she wrote, I have come to think that even in her own day, very few people would reject the son completely if they knew about him. And by that, I mean, knowing of his own word, how many of our moderns have ever sat down and read the New Testament with the 36,450 words spoken by our Savior? 
as carefully as they would read a 100,000 word report of a business enterprise in which their fortunes were mildly involved. How many atheists reading this paragraph can honestly say, I have? I couldn't have said it two years ago, that is certain. I see now that I rejected the son, not as I knew him, but as I thought I knew him, through the distortions my mind accepted of the distortions of other minds. She also wrote that when friends would write to her, concerned about her conversion and inquiring why she would do something so unthinkable, she would send the the same letter to them all and would include a little pamphlet with those 36,450 words that Christ had himself spoken, as quoted in the four Gospels. She said to each of them, If they would read these words, we would both be in better shape when next we met to discuss the matter. For, I said, Jesus Christ himself was the real reason. And I added, I was eager to discuss that real reason, providing we both knew thoroughly the test that must be the foundation of our discussion. With one sole exception, not one of my friends answered my letter. And as I saw them each from time to time, they confessed that they had not felt it necessary to take the hour and a half it required to read these words. They were quite aware, they said, of what he had said. They remembered it all from their childhood. They had not read and did not remember. This struck me at the time as marvelously singular, for each of them was a friend who, at my far less earnest request, would have read or reread a manuscript of 50,000 words on any topic from China to China collecting if I had said it was important to me. I saw then for the first time that all men who are not drawn to the sun are in constant, though unconscious, flight from him. Now, her life after conversion was no less glamorous and successful by worldly measures, but she was a different person. In 1946, she decided not to seek re-election to Congress. She went back to writing not only with the three essays about her conversion, but about politics and worldly affairs, especially against communism, and now about the church. And though Henry would never convert, their marriage was benefited by her conversion. For one, the marital difficulty alluded to before changed from a burden to a freedom. Living as brother and sister was exactly what she was called to do now that she was a Catholic. So with that tension lifted, she and Henry were free to pursue common interests, and they did. Henry always respected the sincerity of her conversion and would defend her to his Protestant friends. But it wasn't just Protestants who asked her the tough questions. In the late 40s, she was giving an address at an all-female college. At the conclusion of her remarks, there was time for Q&A. One of the young women in the audience, since she probably represented a number of the audience members, she had a question about a rather hot-button issue. Here was the brilliant, beautiful, powerful, successful, urbane Claire Booth Luce, who had had a reputation for some level of loose living, and this gal wanted to hear Luce give her take on the church's stance on artificial birth control. Now, this is 20-some years before Humana Vitae. The assembly, or at least some number of them, no doubt wanted to hear Luce give a call for a loosening of the absolute ban. Luce replied, with her clear-eyed gaze. Well, I practiced birth control for 30 years, and all I have to show for it is one dead daughter. The deafening silence that followed spoke volumes. I get chills just thinking about that reply. It's quite the sobering response. Right. In 1952, Claire campaigned hard for Dwight Eisenhower for president, and when he won, he named her ambassador to Italy. She became the first woman to be named ambassador to a major country and held the post very capably for three years. While in Italy, she became a frequent visitor of Pope Pius XII, who came to regard her as one of the most effective secular voices for Catholicism in the U.S. 
And one of the ways she used that voice was the other dramatic work that she was responsible for, the 1949 hit movie, Come to the Stable. This lovely movie was based on a short story Claire had written, and she also helped to write the screenplay. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards, and that included a nomination for Claire in the category Best Writing, Motion Picture Story. And this story could hardly be more of a contrast with her earlier dramatic success, The Women. Right. Come to the Stable tells the story of two French nuns who arrive in the small town of Bethlehem, Connecticut to establish a monastery and a children's hospital. Through simple faith, hard work, humility, and utter reliance on the providence of God, these women make that hospital happen and bring some hardened hearts back to God. In one scene of the movie, the sisters go to town to meet with the crime boss who, it turns out, owns the land that they've set their sights on. They ask him to donate the land, and he does so. But he does so as a tribute to his deceased son. It's a touching moment and couldn't not have been influenced by her own anguish over losing her daughter. So again, her art, her writing was something of a window into her soul at that time. Yes, where before she was immersed in and telling the story of women who gossiped and connived their way to power because power and their own machinations were all that was real to them. Now she's telling the story of humble nuns dedicated to God who have no sinister or self-serving machinations, only trust in the goodness of God to provide. And two interesting side notes. First, the children's hospital the nuns founded, they named it St. Jude's. So while there's no connection to the St. Jude's Children's Hospital or to Danny Thomas, good Catholics naming children's hospitals in honor of St. Jude clearly is a thing. Right. And we told the story of Danny Thomas and St. Jude's Hospital in episode four of this podcast. Check it out. The second interesting note about Come to the Stable is that the monastery the sisters come to Bethlehem to found it's actually the story of the founding of Regina Laudis Monastery, which is where Mother Dolores Hart has been a Benedictine nun since leaving Hollywood in 1963 after her starring roles with Elvis. We'll definitely be telling Mother's story in a future episode. Oh, absolutely. There are connections galore in Claire Booth Luce's story. It is a small Catholic world. In the early 1960s, both Claire and Henry decided to retire from their major activities and live their life together in a more detached manner. They retired to Arizona and decided to build a home in Hawaii. But while that house was in development, Henry died of a massive heart attack in 1967. Claire would complete the house in Hawaii, but it was a smaller affair than had what been planned. Fewer guest rooms and less entertainment space. While her calendar was not quite as full, she did still fight against communist encroachments, advocate for conservative causes, and campaign for Republican candidates, including her friend Ronald Reagan for president. She was named to the president's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board by President Richard Nixon and again by President Reagan. She was made a Dame of Malta and awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1983. When Claire Booth Luce died of cancer in 1987, her funeral was a tiny private affair at Memkin, which she had donated to an order of Trappist monks many years prior. And she was buried with Henry and her daughter Anne near those lovely oak trees she had strolled among so many times. It was a fittingly simple end to such a remarkable life full of contrast. She had started so low, risen so high, and finally rested in such a humble place. One of her biographers, Alden Hatch, wrote of her, Brilliant, yet often foolish, idealistic, yet realistic to the verge of cynicism, tough 
as a Marine sergeant, but almost quixotically kind to unfortunates. With the mind and courage of a man and exceedingly feminine instincts, the complexities of her character are as numerous as the facets of her career. Probably the reason no one understands her completely is because she does not even understand herself. But in the end, she understood. And the woman of the century, as she was sometimes called, died a faithful daughter of the church. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a good review and support the work of SQPN. Your support at sqpn.com slash give helps make sure American Catholic history and all the StarQuest podcasts remain available. To learn more about Claire Booth Luce, to find previous episodes, and to send feedback, please visit sqpn.com slash history. For more information about our pilgrimage to the Kentucky Holy Land and Bourbon Country, please visit pilgrimages.com slash Catholic Kentucky Bourbon. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on social media at facebook.com slash American Catholic History or follow StarQuest on Twitter at sqpn. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest.